You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. We see female founders that have performed 63% better than male founding teams. And oftentimes it is where you have constrained resources and opportunities where you see the most innovation. And I have a lot of faith that, again, people who have been in those constrained environments are the ones who can also think about the best way and solutions to do things for the future for healthcare. That was Sonia Milsom, the CEO of Axion, talking with Fierce's Heather Landy about barriers to equitable care. Stay with us. We'll hear more from her about how the healthcare industry needs to think creatively about the next generation of leadership. I'm Teresa Carey. Today is International Women's Day, a day to celebrate the achievements of women and call on everyone, even the healthcare industry, to imagine a gender equal world. So for this episode, we've invited a couple of accomplished women and our very own senior editor, Heather Landy, to talk about how abortion restrictions impact maternal and infant health and diversity in healthcare leadership positions. Before the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, a number of states passed trigger laws that would ban all, or nearly all, abortions once the national abortion protections ended. That all went into effect last June. As of January, 12 states are enforcing a near-total ban on abortion, with very limited exceptions. And other states have restrictions or laws in progress. The United States already faces a maternal health crisis— The country fares worse in preventing pregnancy-related deaths than most other developed nations. In 2020, the maternal mortality rate in the U.S. was 24 deaths per 100,000 live births, more than three times the rate in most other high-income countries. For healthcare providers and researchers, a key question in a post-Roe world is, will abortion restrictions result in reduced access to maternal and infant care? And will there be worse health outcomes? In a recent analysis, the Commonwealth Fund found that states with abortion restrictions have fewer maternity care providers and more maternity care deserts. These states also have higher rates of maternal mortality and infant death, especially among women of color, and higher overall death rates for women of reproductive age. Dr. Lori Zephyrin is an OBGYN specialist and health equity leader with the Commonwealth Fund. She sat down with senior editor Heather Landy to discuss the potential impact of abortion bans on women's health. Here's Heather Landy and Dr. Zephyrin. Well, hi, Dr. Zephyrin. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm very interested in speaking with you about women's health in a post-Roe world and what can be done to improve the maternal health care system. Thank you. And thanks for having me, Heather. It's so, so great to talk about these issues that are near and dear to my heart. So let's talk about the recent Commonwealth Fund report looking at the maternal health divide and the potential impact of abortion restrictions. The analysis compared the current status of maternal and infant health in states that have or are likely to have bans or restrictions on abortion access with states that do not restrict abortion. I read the study, and one of the main findings is that in states that have banned or restricted abortion access, Rates of maternal and infant deaths are much higher than in states that have preserved access. 
Did that surprise you? You know, it, it is always surprising when you when you see the data in real life. And we did this really because we wanted to set the baseline for maternal health care so that we can understand how it changes over time as abortion bans and restrictions are put into place. So what this study tells us is it tells us where we are now, which is in a pretty dire place. And it lets us know that this is something that we need to watch very closely. Right. And since the Dobbs decision last summer, there have been downstream effects that go beyond abortion access. For instance, there are reports that pharmacies are denying access to methotrexate, a drug often used in patients with arthritis or cancer. In some states, there's confusion among doctors about what constitutes life-saving care. With these downstream impacts in mind, what concerns you most about abortion restrictions? You know, it's it's most important to understand that these deficits will not be felt equally. We're piling onto a broken, inequitable system um, that can create harms for those most marginalized. And just as you highlighted, it creates a lot of confusion in terms of what is actually appropriate clinical health care. We can't have lawmakers dictate what should happen between a provider and their patient. Um, you know, I can tell you as a, as a physician, as an OBGYN, you know, what concerns me the most is that pregnant people won't get access to the health care that they need. You know, they need providers that respect them, listen to them. They need the freedom to choose their own reproductive futures. And that becomes very challenging um, when when it's not clear to people that are practicing on the ground, you know, whether there'll be repercussions for the care that they know they need to provide. Right. Now, the, stu- the study findings indicate that making abortion illegal makes pregnancy and childbirth more dangerous for women. Can you explain that? What is the connection? There, there's, a, there's a number of questions. I mean, adding bans and restrictions can really make all manner of reproductive health care harder to get. Um, they could mean fewer providers, more maternity care deserts, inequitable um, distribution of the harms, again, harming those that are most marginalized, especially Black and Indigenous people, um, increasing the numbers of pregnancies on an already fractured healthcare system, and more births into a poor quality system results in more poor quality. And then, you know, as you've mentioned earlier, we need to understand uh, what I call ripple effects, right? the impact of providers um, who may not feel comfortable practicing in certain states, you know, is there a risk of creating more maternity care deserts? Um, The impact on training, right? The same procedure for an abortion is the same procedure that can save uh, the life of someone that's bleeding uncontrollably from a miscarriage or, you know, a stuck placenta or afterbirth, you know, and less training in these types of procedures means for training for potentially risky situations. Right. And you brought up the impact on marginalized communities and the fact that this can really, that these abortion bans and restrictions can really um, exacerbate already existing disparities. What should, you know, providers and policymakers, what should they keep in mind that these restrictions are really going to have an, um, an outsized impact on certain communities? I think it's it's really important for healthcare providers and policymakers to ensure that uh, marginalized communities have a voice, to ensure that we're tracking the data and really be able to understand uh, the inequitable outcomes that will occur. You know, similar to how we were able to see the inequitable impacts of COVID once 
the data was revealed by race and ethnicity and other variables. We need the same real-time data and real-time analysis around maternal health and, and reproductive health outcomes. You know, is there an opportunity to do that? You know, I don't want these, um, you know, these outcomes to really, to really uh, develop in the shadows and, and we don't see them. So it's really important to pay, pay attention to them. You know, and some will argue that women can travel to other states to obtain an abortion if they live in states where it is restricted. But why is this issue so about so much more than just access to abortion services? You're, you're absolutely right. It is, it is about access to abortion services and more. The same providers and the same training that can train uh, providers how to perform abortions, a lot of that same training is important for what will save someone's life during a, a miscarriage or during a birth a complication. Um, it affects access to providers. You know, you're even hearing, you know, I'm even hearing of providers that are thinking about moving or not wanting to train in certain states. And that will already exacerbate or, or worsen the workforce challenges that we see. You know, in our study, we found that like states that have bans have fewer maternity care providers and more maternity care deserts. And so if you're adding a very difficult environment for healthcare providers to practice, what does that mean? Will they stay in, in that particular area? So we really have to understand that and really just realize that this, the ripple effects, the impact on access to healthcare, the ripple effects on access to contraception, to reproductive healthcare, um, you know, the other pieces, you know, our study also found that, um, you know, those are those states that are more likely to ban abortion have more maternal deaths. Um, we also looked at Medicaid expansion in, in, in those states as well. And so by not having access to just health care coverage, uh, that also just impacts people's overall health. Right. Yeah, I've seen data showing that states that have the most restrictive um, regulations and laws about abortion also tend to spend the least on women's and, and infant health care. Um, so obviously, there's a, there's an issue there. There's a disparity, and it goes beyond just um, abortion services. What could be the impact to maternal and infant health in those states where abortion is banned? You know, what's what's really at stake here? I think what's really at stake is we you know, we we really understand we're we're talking more. We're not just talking about numbers. We're talking about real people and their lives. We're talking about people's families. We're talking about people's livelihood and well-being. And so I think it's really important to humanize, you know, this issue um, and really understand the impact on, on people. And it's also to your point earlier about, you know, expecting women to travel to other, to other states. That also makes a lot of assumptions, right? We assume that people have jobs where they can take time off. We assume that people have resources to go to another state. So what steps can health systems and other healthcare providers do to expand access to prenatal and, and maternal care in states that are restricting abortion and, and those that are, are, are not restricting? I think it, it's time for, for states, particularly those with restriction and bans, to double down on investments in, in maternal health, um, investing in the maternal health workforce, um, and improving access to midwifery care, to OBGYN providers, to nurse practitioners that can provide reproductive health care. 
Um, I think the coverage piece is really important. You know, policies like expanding Medicaid so pregnant people can have access to health care coverage for a year after birth is also really critical and important. We also can't can't forget the importance of ensuring that there's high quality care and we need to be able to track those outcomes as well. Exactly. Right. So uh, you've mentioned expanding Medicaid as, as being a really key effort. Is there anything else that state policymakers can do to really kind of ensure, um, you know, improve women's health? Yes, definitely. I, I definitely think there's an importance to invest in uh, FQHCs and community health centers, ensuring that they're able to provide the full complement of reproductive health care services. Um, having access to primary health care, I think, is really important as well. I also think innovation is an important part of this as well, right? Are there opportunities for telehealth, building out telehealth services so that people can have access to medication, abortions, for example, or access to uh, women's reproductive health services through through telehealth? Is there opportunity to continue to invest in innovation funds or abortion funds, for example. Now I'd like to talk a little bit more about you and your healthcare experience. I mean, you lead health equity efforts at the Commonwealth Fund, but you're also an OBGYN. Um, you know, what made you want to become an OGB, OBGYN? Oh, goodness. You know, I... <laughs> so, you know, in terms of my, you know, my my upbringing and, and family, you know, my, my, my mom was a nurse. Or my dad was a teacher in in the public school system, and so giving back was always something that was part of our our life, our household. And for me, I just remember this was I mean in high school. I mean I was probably like fifteen when I was exposed to an after school program where people were were talking about the impact of health on their lives. I mean. We heard from social workers, we heard from nurses, we heard from physicians. And just very early on, like I was able to make the connection between what we now call the drivers of health um, and the impact on health care. And I just felt that by becoming an OBGYN, by being immersed in the healthcare system, I could have an impact on people's lives. It's just such a special privilege for me to be able to talk to women and birthing people and and just help guide them through their healthcare journeys. So I feel very privileged to do that. And it also just became clear to me that even as a clinician, being able to understand systems and structures and policies is really important to create a healthcare system where clinicians can thrive and patients can thrive. Now, the results of the Commonwealth Fund study that we talked about earlier, it paints a pretty grim picture about the future for maternal and infant health in some of these states that are banning and restricting abortion. But in your, in your role as a doctor and an OBGYN, what makes you hopeful about the potential to improve health care for women? You know, I am hopeful for the attention and visibility of this issue. Uh, I think there's so many people that are galvanized by this ruling, and I think even across the world, to just really understand the impacts of this. I'm hoping that this work will drive policy change. I also think it's it's really important uh, for us to understand the impacts of this on people's lives. And so I've been really... uh, moved by by work that we've supported at, at the Commonwealth Fund 
to help tell people's stories, to fund and support journalists that are uh, talking to people on the ground so that, you know, their suffering and their challenges aren't just in the dark, right? I think we need to tell people's stories. People need to understand the impacts of this and we need to continue to, to galvanize innovation, resources, policies that can help change this in, in the short term and over the long term. Right. And just to throw one more question at you um, on the fly here. So in your work as an OBGYN, can you think of a situation with a patient that really kind of brings these issues home to you, um, these issues with regards to reproductive health and the need to really have for women to have access? I, I recall talking with, with, a, with a patient and she hadn't been to the healthcare system for over a decade. And reading through her chart, when she had finally come and saw her providers, they were very, you know, dismissive of some of her her symptoms, right? And when I finally saw her, I came to recognize that she was working three jobs. She was um, homeless, but like couch couch surfing with family members, and she had a 10-year-old child, you know, just really trying to make ends meet the best way she she could. And so as I think about that story and fast forward to today, I think for someone like that, it's important for one, for healthcare providers to be able to listen, to understand what are the challenges people experience. For someone like her who who may not have access to reproductive health care, it creates a lot of challenges, right? Like we can assume that if she needed to have an abortion, she could just travel to another state and afford it, but she wouldn't be able to with the, with the several jobs she had. We can assume that she would have access to healthcare insurance, but she may not live in a state where there's coverage. So I think this isn't an, an exact story to your question or an exact response to your question, but I think what it highlights is we need to be able to humanize and understand the impacts of this decision on people's lives. And there are many people that live on the margins by no fault of their own um, and are going to feel the impact of of this for a long time. I think it's a very insightful point. Um, thank you for sharing those insights. Um, Dr. Zephyrin, it's been really great speaking with you and thanks for sharing your perspective. Thank you so much for doing this work. I really appreciate it. That was Heather Landy with Lori Zephyrin. Next up, we'll talk about women, diversity, and leadership. But before we continue with our next guest, I have an announcement. It's that time of year again, March Madness. And here at Fierce, we're doing it our own way. This year, our Fierce Healthcare team is looking for executives who are leading the charge in transforming healthcare. And this time, we want you to tell us who should make our bracket. Beginning today at FierceHealthcare.com, you can submit your nominations. You have until 6 p.m. on March 15th to tell us your top choices. The full bracket will be revealed on March 20th, and we can't wait to see your picks. Many healthcare organizations are committing resources to diversity, equity, and inclusiveness initiatives within their patient population and within local communities. But these same organizations 
need to take an honest look in the mirror at what their leadership looks like. The numbers show that healthcare has a lot of work to do. A JAMA study published in 2021 found that women hold only about 15% of the CEO positions among health systems and insurance companies. The AHA surveyed 900 hospitals and found that the percentage of female board members had increased marginally in the last four years, from 30% in 2018 to 36% last year. Among those hospitals, only 21% of board members represent a historically underrepresented group. Venture-backed healthcare companies aren't doing much better. Overall, only about 13% board seats are held by women. Our next guest, Sonia Milsom, is the CEO of Oxian, a healthcare executive search firm. She chatted with Heather Landy about how the healthcare industry needs to think creatively about the next generation of leadership. Here's Heather Landy with Sonia Milsom. Hi, Sonia. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to chat with you about how to bring more women and people of color into leadership positions in healthcare. Thank you so much for having me, Heather. I'm excited to be here and speak with you about that. It's something I have a deep passion about. So I read an article about you online that says you were born in an area of New York City that was historically a rather gritty neighborhood to immigrant parents. So how does your personal and professional background, which includes two decades in healthcare leadership roles, inform your perspective about diversity or really the lack of diversity in the industry? So yes, I was born in Hell's Kitchen when it was Hell's Kitchen in the (laughs) 70s. My parents came to this country as immigrants. And, you know, it was very much where I have seen firsthand how it is difficult to be the only, you know, the person who is different in the room, who does not have the background or the network or the resources, financial resources, in order to build what it takes in order to succeed. And oftentimes, I think immigrants are the biggest entrepreneurs because there is no playbook. They have to figure out as they go. And I think that is really what's informed a lot of my opportunities that have come to me and the way that I've thought about my career and where where I am. And I'm also mindful of the people that are sitting around the table with me in those scenarios. And I say that because, you know, I think uh, we're often, there's often a seat at the table is the way that we think about it as we think about diversity. But I think we have to think about it more broadly in terms of the three different tables that really have seats that allow us to make an impact. And those tables are company leadership tables. They are boardroom tables and seats, and they are also cap tables around investors. It's really that combination, and it's really what's informed, again, how I've thought about the opportunity for success, both from a diversity perspective, but also to make an impact on healthcare, which desperately needs it. Right. Let's kind of dive into that. So data shows that healthcare still has a lot of work to do to improve diversity in the C-suite and in the boardroom. I've I've seen data that shows about 15% of healthcare CEOs are women. Um, Among hospitals, I believe about 21% of board members represent a historically underrepresented group. So diversity and DEI policies have become trendy topics, but it's about more than just lip service, right? I think at the end of the day, Everybody is a consumer of healthcare, and that diversity exists in the day-to-day consumer who is taking it, right? If you think about Medicaid populations, for example, where almost half of all births take place, right, but, you know, overall, 
those are the types of individuals and people that we need to make sure that we are serving and that the system serves because ultimately, A, we want to invest in in those individuals and in those families, but also it's what takes up our healthcare spend and it's what you know drives the experience. And if we're not mindful of that, we're never going to have a system where what we have right now, which again, with $4 trillion of spend, the highest level of maternal and child mortality rates, highest level of chronic obesity rates of any developed country and highest mortality rates. That does not create a high functioning system or one that's sustainable and invests in the health of our communities. So I'm interested in uh, talking to you more about what you're seeing with your company, Oxion, which is a healthcare executive search firm, along with being an investment firm and a venture studio. So as you're working with companies, are, are you seeing more companies coming to you and, and saying that they are prioritizing diversity in their leadership roles? Or is this something that you are bringing to their attention? I think we're seeing both. We are seeing it across the ecosystem. I, I think it, it varies a little bit, I think, by the market and the segment. So as you mentioned, you know, we are seeing more and more CEOs in healthcare positions, particularly in publicly traded companies, right? If you look at the Karen Lynch's of the world and the Roz Brewers and others, Gail Boudreau, others who've taken on the helm there, you're seeing more and more uh, in those scenarios. You're also seeing quite a bit in venture. I think it's where also there are you know, there is innovation. There are women and people of color who are taking risks and chances. It's one of the things that we believe in in Oxion, in our venture studio, the founding teams of our organization, 60% of them are women and 35% of them are people of color because we believe in helping to support, put those people in decision-making responsibilities. And they're driving, again, those changes, particularly in companies that are serving underserved populations. We see that I think we're seeing, you see maybe less of it in private equity. I think that's where you're seeing less of those opportunities, but but they are starting to think about it more and more on the board level. And I think across the board, that is where we are seeing the most. So one of the programs that we run is Break Into the Boardroom. It's a part of our organization where we support putting women on boards. We put over 70 women on boards because of Break Into the Boardroom. And it's, again, we're doing that across that healthcare ecosystem, venture, private equity, as well as publicly traded companies. There's data that shows that having diversity um, in the boardroom can actually tie into the success of a company. Now, is that something that you are educating more company leaders about? Yes, yeah, so I think it's where we are seeing, we know that, again, that diversity of thought helps bring better opportunities for management teams to learn from that. I also have seen myself, as I've been sitting on some of these boards or in prior, prior operating companies, it was really when you started to have more than one woman or a person of color at the table. But when you started to see three or more is really where you started to see change. And we also know that there has been data. There's, we're continuing to collect it and look at it. But we see that those companies actually perform better over time. They return better. Uh, they raise less capital over time. You know, Maybe they're taking less risk, but they're also performing better overall in terms of exits and in valuation. Yeah. So I wanted to get into that a little bit more. You know, it's often said that women make 80% of healthcare buying decisions in the U.S., but are vastly underrepresented at healthcare leadership tables and in the venture capital space. What's more, in 2022, companies founded solely by women garnered just 2% of the total capital invested in venture-backed startups in the U.S. So it stands to reason that female check writers are more likely to invest in female founders. So how do we get more women involved at the institutional level? 
Yes, I think there's been a great trend in starting to see operators who are also moving into the institutional level. So myself as an example, I've been on the operating teams of multiple organizations and now coming into an organization where I'm able to help, again, bring leaders into leadership positions, think about putting people onto boards as well as deploying capital across that. I think you see more and more of these operators as they become more successful, they're able to bring and write deploy checks, right? As you see more exits, they're thinking about how they can help deploy that capital and they bring others along with them. So I know I particularly uh, try to think about female founders when I'm thinking about where I'm advising or consulting and being able to bring money to a cap table. We again see that as we see in our venture studio as we're serving again, these underserved populations, but also again, putting people and women in the positions to be able to do that as well. Right. And it's about backing up, backing it up with data, right? I mean, research shows that female founders and gender diverse teams continue to outperform. They have quicker exits and greater valuation growth. When we think about data, uh, it's really about tra- tracking the outcomes of those organizations over time. So there's a book out, When Women Lead. It talks a lot about the studies that have been done by First Round, by McKinsey, by others that actually demonstrate that performance that is taking place at a higher level by women. And so, as you mentioned, we see female founders that have performed 63% better than male founding teams. And so we want to be able to continue to do that. And we have to keep tracking it. I think now is a really critical juncture, particularly with the market dynamics for where they are with multiple companies that are struggling to raise. We're going to be seeing what those trends look like. And oftentimes, you know, again, it is where you have constrained resources and opportunities where you see the most innovation. And I have a lot of faith that, again, people who have been in those constrained environments are the ones who can also think about the best way and solutions to do things for the future for healthcare. Right. So we all we have all this data and these studies, but um, as it stands now, you know, female founded companies, companies founded by people of color still get fewer um, venture capital dollars. Sometimes it's a little bit of a check the box um, you know, venture capital firms will maybe invest in a, in a women's health company and then they'll say, well, we made our our one women's health play and they kind of just are checking the box. So, you know, what is really standing in the way of the healthcare industry making more progress on diversity in, in leadership? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. I think one, again, in a market where there is unknowns, you know, you think about investors overall, they are looking generally for pattern recognition. So they are looking to see, if it was a team or people who have done this before, they're looking to see a space where they see opportunity and where they can make a projection that something will happen. And there's still less of that data that is available and informed around areas like women's health. You know, we need to see some of those successes that allows investors to have more of that confidence in the pattern recognition. But we also have to encourage them to take a little bit of risk. That's where we need to place our bets. In addition to what we know, it's tried and true in the playbooks. Yeah, great point. In talking with healthcare executives, I think most are very sincere in their desire to have more diversity in their boardrooms and their C-suites. The many don't know where to start or how to find the right talent. What are some recommendations that you have for how healthcare companies can recruit and promote more diverse leaders? Well, first, I think it's taking a hard look at your own network, right? That is where most people get your jobs. It's about who you know and the relationships you build. And so I always encourage people to look a little bit out of their normal box when they are thinking about talent. Think beyond who you know immediately and go two or three steps beyond what that looks like. And I also think it's a mandate. It's important, I think, to ask 
for a diverse slate of candidates. You know, it is how you start to get that network. So even when you're doing a search, ask for it. We are always willing to bring it. We always try to bring diversity to that. You know, it is important that we are, you know, our placements over the last year, about 50, have been about 50-50 individuals who identify as women as well as individuals who identify as men. And it's important that we are bringing that to the table. Yeah. And I like your point about going beyond your own network, maybe taking a, a step or two beyond. Um, because sometimes if people stay within their own networks, it really is just going to kind of um, continue the status quo, right? It is. I mean, it's you You tend to know the people that you know from school or that you worked with initially. And so it's taking the time. You know, um, one of the best hires I ever made when I was at Iora in healthcare was uh, somebody to run our sales area. And I hired somebody who had actually come from the car rental space. Mm-hmm. It was a, a man who was a person of color. He's, he's done a tremendous job and he, you know, took it on, but came with fresh eyes, fresh perspectives, was able to build the team and, you know, will continue to do so as he continues to go on and succeed in his career. But I think it's tried sometimes, again, taking a step back and thinking a little bit differently about the problem that you're trying to solve to bring new people to the table. Right. So it's about being maybe a little creative when looking at the next generation of leaders. I've seen some healthcare companies tapping people um, from like consumer help, um, consumer companies, people with no healthcare background, which I think is very interesting. And as you mentioned earlier, there are several programs and initiatives out there to that are focused on increasing representation. You mentioned break into the boardroom. There's also Beyond the Billion, which is a group of venture funds pledged to invest over $1 billion into women-founded companies. Do you think that these efforts can significantly help move the needle? Or are these problems more entrenched and require major systemic change? I think it's both. I think that the programs are helpful because they bring visibility. And then again, they bring people to the table. I'm very proud that we've placed over 70 women in, in on boardrooms, but ideally it would be 700, not 70. And so they help. It's it's the beginning. I think ultimately it is systemic in the way that our systems are organized, again, that are difficult for people who come from different backgrounds, people who don't have that shared experience, you know, at very high levels of organizations to have influence and voice onto how healthcare is ultimately delivered. And that's where we need to make the change. Right. So, it, you know, obviously to date, the healthcare industry has made pretty slow progress to improve um, diversity. You know, from your perspective, and you have a broad perspective across the industry, you know, what makes you hopeful about the progress going forward? I'm hopeful because, again, you start to see change. You, you are starting, the dollars are still small, but they're getting bigger. Uh, you are starting to also see real progress if you think about, as I mentioned, you know, the Fortune 500, the number of women, you know, that are more, 10% more of them now are led by companies that are women, right? And so you're seeing more and more of those. You're starting to see it in the healthcare insurer world as well. Uh, you even look at all of the blues, you know, you look at the Kim Kecks and the Martha Wofords and the others, the individuals who are starting, Sarah Islin, you know, that are taking on leadership positions, which then allow them at a very local level of their health plans to think about the delivery of care, the influence that is there within that local ecosystem, you start to see some of those shifts. And then I think we just have to be very supportive, again, of many of the women that are in venture, whether they're female founders or if you're seeing um, people of color who are there who are building pretty amazing companies. We need to continue to be 
supportive of that, thinking about that, buying from them directly if you have the opportunity to do it as well. You know, it's not just about investing. That's a, a big part of it, but it's also the ability to actually get their, take their services wherever you can make those choices. Right. Great points. And this is going to be obviously very interesting to watch going forward um, in the next few years. So International Women's Day is this this Wednesday, March 8th. So what should we all be doing and thinking about on International Women's Day? Yeah, it's a great day to reflect on uh, both how much progress has been made, but also the opportunities ahead of us. And so I would think on that day, we should all be a being thankful to those that have helped us be successful to where we are today. And, and that includes many women, but it also includes men. The second is to celebrate those women that you know who are doing hard things today and remind all of us that those hard things can be accomplished by all of us supporting each other. And then lastly, I think just having courage. You know, all of us have to have courage and to stand up and have a voice for what we believe and to take the time that we have for those seats at the table and to leverage them to bring others to the table and to make a difference. It's it's a privilege to have that. Not everybody does. And if we don't respect that privilege, you know, we'll lose it. Right. Well, Sonia, it's been great chatting with you, especially as we all celebrate International Women's Day this week. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodson. You can find more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. Next week, we're going to focus on the hospital business. We'll discuss what tactics rural hospitals might use this year. And we'll also talk about how hospitals and health systems in general can battle against their financial woes and competition from the tech world. So tune in Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat. Thank you.